Hello, this is Trevor Smith welcoming you to Audio Mission from the Church Mission Society for May 2014. This month we'll be visiting Ukraine and Uganda. But first we go to Pakistan. Jeremy Woodham met two mission partners who've been there for 10 years. While they must remain anonymous, they told him about everyday life for the people of this troubled nation. Most Pakistanis' day-to-day life is just a struggle to survive. The biggest pressure on them is inflation, which is getting carried away, and how on earth they manage to feed their families, we just don't know. Who has inspired you among the upcoming uh, Christian leaders in the area? Well, unfortunately, we wouldn't want to name any names, but there are Christian leaders who are actively involved in evangelism, not stupidly, not recklessly, but wisely and boldly spreading the word of God, knowing that that puts them in personal danger. And worse than that, knowing it puts their families in personal danger. But those people exist. And I think that's all I'd want to tell you. I think we've also met a lot of young people, up and coming young people in their early 20s into their 30s, young people, young Christian people who um, really want to work out their faith in their lives. Some of them go to college and might be the only Christian in their mm. class. We know young man, one young man like that, and he says often he's, he's asked even by the professors um, for a Christian viewpoint, and he is willing to, to give them the answers that he knows. And if he doesn't know the answer, he'll say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll go and find out. But many of the Christians are in that position. If they get into that sort of higher education, then they are often in a minority in their classes. But they are wanting to, to show their faith to, to their fellow classmates and, and be a witness. And many of them also recognise there are a number of divides across the church, denominational divides. People don't trust each other if you're not a Catholic or you're not a Pentecostal or you're not a church of Pakistan. But we've also find, found, certainly over the last few years, that there are many of the young people in the church who don't want that. So if, say, they organise a conference, they love to have conferences, and Nigel and I have sometimes been asked to speak along with other speakers, and we find that they deliberately make sure that every denomination is invited so it's not just for one denomination and they try to do that deliberately to show that we don't want this policy of division we want to break through the barriers and and be one together and so we often find when we go to conferences or special days like that that there are other people from other denominations all mixing together and learning together and that's very encouraging Are there inspiring Muslims too? I can think of a good number of influential Pakistani Muslims who have put themselves at great risk to help Christian people. I can think of businessmen or NGO leaders who take a great pride in saying our business or our NGO takes the best people, whether they're Christian, Hindu or Muslim, and we are equal without discrimination. And of course, we must always give great respect to Salman Tasir, the former governor of the Punjab, who stood out against the blasphemy laws, or rather the misuse of the blasphemy laws, and took an interest in a woman who was being 
falsely accused under those laws and paid for his actions with his life. I think it's fair to say there are Christian martyrs who've been killed for resistance to these evil laws, but there are probably more Muslims than Christians who have stood up against them and paid the price. And that's a very interesting sort of balance that that we don't often hear. And you've heard about some other uh, interesting uh, follow-on from the uh, the attack on All Saints mm-hmm. Church in Peshawar mm-hmm. by Muslim groups. Yes, there, there is a particular group that decided it was time for them to stand up against this kind of uh, violence against Christian communities. And um, so they talked to the local bishops in, I think the Roman Catholic bishops particularly, in one or two of the main cities, and they agreed to come to the churches and after the the morning service to to form like a ring of friendship around the church with the congregation and give a few speeches, but stand together to say we don't want this anymore and it it was um, reported in the papers as well and the words that they were saying their leader was saying was we know what the terrorists do on Sundays now we're showing what the rest of us can do on Sundays we join with our brother and sister Pakistanis um, to show that we are with them and to encourage them let's give thanks for these inspiring examples of cooperation and pray for those boldly yet sensitively sharing the gospel. Alan and Anne Lacey found themselves answering God's call to cross-cultural mission right at the end of their careers. Alan, a pastor, and Anne, a nurse teacher, found all sorts of ways to put their skills to use in the remote northwest of Uganda in the Diocese of Madi, West Nile. It stopped us treading water, they told Sarah Holmes on a visit to the CMS offices in Oxford. It's been a very interesting way to end our working lives, if you like. We are now retiring. So we came, we went to Africa for seven years as our last posting, as it were. And it was like nothing we'd ever done in Britain, obviously. But also I think it was a huge privilege to be able to share in a church and in a country that was so different, a culture that was so different from our own. We learnt a great deal that we would never have learnt here. We experienced a lot of hardship and frustration that we would never have experienced here. But I think on balance it's been a tremendously growing and and vitalising experience for us. I think it might have kept us a bit younger than we would otherwise have been if we'd stayed here. There was a very practical thing that was set up, um, the Repographics Mm -hmm. Unit. Mm -hmm. Explain the importance and significance of that Mm -hmm. because that kind of opened up doors to all sorts of things really for people didn't it well the reprographics unit came about because we wanted to produce more uh, teaching materials and resources for pastors particularly and to have printed those um otherwise to have actually bought that out um would have been prohibitively expensive and so money was provided from the uk to help set up this small printing unit which meant we could produce those teaching materials But in addition to that, it now provides for the needs of the local churches, for many local schools and other institutions. The hospital that Anne was involved in gets a lot of its work done there. And it's now run by three Africans and is self-supporting. We're hoping it might be able to develop further. But without it, I think, to have produced the materials that we've used over the last few years would have been almost impossible can you tell us about the materials that were produced 
and tell me what language they were translated into and, and how they kind of helped people mm. and who they helped, really. Well, in the first place, it was set up to produce what we call lectionary link, which is basic uh, background and commentary on all the readings in the three-year revised common lectionary. So that was at least three readings for every Sunday for three years. That was all translated into Lubara, which is one of the four local languages. I think in time it may well be translated into some of the other three languages in West Nile. Anne, can I ask you about your work and the people that you have taught and your students? Because you were talking quite fondly of the, of your students and their sort of thirst for, for knowledge. I think one of the most rewarding things about the teaching there was sometimes going out to a health centre somewhere in, in the rural part of the diocese and finding one of our ex-students working there um, as a midwife or even as an in-charge uh, and seeing them using the skills that, that they'd learnt, certainly not from me, and they, they learnt a lot more than I could give them because Ugandan nursing is very different from British nursing. But, uh, you know, running health units, being good Christian nurses in those places, that was one of the most rewarding parts of it. And the other rewarding part was just that they were very affectionate, very, mm. very loving. They they just love having expatriate tutors. They think there's something very splendid about having an expat tutor, um, and so they they made a big fuss of me, which was very nice. <laughs> Can I ask about inspirational people? There was a church teacher that we got to know very well. His name is Ephraim. Actually, we couldn't communicate directly with him very well because his his English wasn't very good and our Lugbara was terrible, but we managed to communicate. Um, he was the church teacher of a church that we attended regularly and the pastor of that church we also knew. This man, Ephraim, became sick and we'd actually been home for five months and when we got back we realised he looked much worse. No, he, he looked ill, whereas he'd been well when we left and it turned out he had liver cancer. He was a wonderful man, great man of faith, never had any question about God was good and God was caring for him and his wife Zilla and their children. However, it was clear he was not going to recover from this liver cancer. We were able to help him to access what palliative care services there were in Arua, which was not huge. But most people with cancer that is serious get referred down to Kampala, 500 kilometres away, for uh, a consultation that probably won't cure them and just costs a fortune and they haven't got any resources to do that. So he stayed in Arua. He had some very good palliative care from uh, one nurse that, that we knew well and he ended up at one point in hospital close to death and it was not a good place for him to be it was the government hospital so we were able to extract him from this ward and take him home and in the hospital ward he'd been really unconscious it didn't seem he knew what was going on as soon as we got him in our car and then took him to where he lived he just became Ephraim again. He, although he was clearly very ill, he knew where he was and he was delighted to be home. And he went uh, to his bed in his home to die. And the next day, or a couple of days later, we had a communion service just outside his window because it was a tiny house with a few people from the church and the pastor from the church. Alan and the pastor led it together and Ephraim was listening from behind the window, open window. And that was the last thing he did that, that night. He became unconscious and died. But he and his wife were an inspiration to us. An example of love and care uh, from the UK for that family was that we wrote about them in our link letter because it had been a very important time for us, watching him die and helping him to die, if you like, well. Um, we wrote about him and the fact that he and his wife had planned for their retirement to have a house to live in, but uh, he had died and now his wife, because he'd been a church teacher, the house belonged to the church, his wife was now homeless with these two children. 
And so uh, we wrote about this situation. Many of our friends and link churches contributed money voluntarily for this situation to try and build Zilla a house. And the pastor from the church also was naturally a builder himself uh, before he was a pastor. And so he helped to do the physical skills and the money from UK eventually after about a year and a half. We managed to finish this house, which uh, was such a joy to go and celebrate with Zilla uh, a year and a half after her husband died. There she was in a completed house and able to celebrate and and thank the people of Britain who'd helped her, but also Mm -hmm. the church there who'd helped her and us as a sort of conduit for that. So Mm -hmm. that was a real inspiration to see them. They were very poor. They had no resources, but they were able to to have somewhere for Zilla to live. Give thanks for all Alan and Anne were able to achieve and to receive in their six years in Uganda. And do pray for those in Maddy West Nile, like Gift, taking over the running of the Reprographics workshop set up by Alan. Recent events in Ukraine seem to threaten a new Cold War. Mission partner Alison Giblet has been based in the country for the last 10 years. She spoke to Jeremy Woodham about the day-to-day work she's involved in helping people to become free of addictions just before the revolution took place. Alison, you've been working with CMS for a good number of years now in, in Russia and now in Ukraine. Right. Um, and a lot to do with uh, the area of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, is that still the case Yes, I'm still very much involved with the whole uh, area of addiction. It's not all that I do, but it's probably about 50% of my time. And there's something called the Genesis process that you're heavily involved with. That's correct. Um, Could you tell us a bit about that? I'm running courses, a Genesis uh, process courses, which are aimed to help people identify the wounds and the areas um, in their lives where they are currently not trusting God, where their lives are not um, in line with his design. And the course enables people to receive God's healing for those wounds so that their attitudes can be changed, so that those negative behaviours, that negative habits can be exchanged for much more constructive and healthy habits. But we can't do that just in our own strength because any form of an addiction, by definition, is something that we're out of control of. And therefore, we need support and we need God's strength and guidance but we also need the support of other people which is why we operate them in groups where people can learn to build healthy relationships and not just be reacting out of things from the past and so this means that where's they uh, meet for the whole course those relationships healthy relationships can be built up the course is normally run um, for three months um, on the first level and then the second level in about six to eight months so that over the whole year they have time for not only to learn but to put into practice the new habits and as they've continued over a year they really see some very uh, strong differences and positive results and then they testify to other people and they also want to come. So when did you sort of start with this what what's happened how many groups sort of run where i've been running this course for five years i took the course three times before doing it and i'm running these groups now primarily in kiev where i live um, as a ministry of the ukrainian missionary church and so they provide us facilities and 
the most of, not all, of the facilitators, the people who run the groups with me, are from this uh, Ukrainian missionary church. But uh, I've also been invited to teach this course in many other towns um, and other countries as well. So in those places I do it as an intensive course, say for four days, uh, and we run part of it and then come back and allow people to put into practice part of them and then come back and do carry on. And so that way we can also found it as effective and there are groups ongoing in Moldova and a few other places we've been to lots of countries lots of towns in Ukraine and uh, Russia and also in Malaysia uh, this year so how many uh, groups sort of run from your team at any one time well, we have three groups running uh, at any one time in Kiev, um, and then there's uh, probably two or three in Moldova. As I say, they're different sizes and different levels, and um, but they're open to everybody, Christian or unchristian, different denominations and different um, stages of faith. Everybody finds it helpful. Okay, and you talked about all forms of addiction. Yes. So, I mean straight away in people's minds maybe drug addiction alcoholism yes. is that the typical person who comes or is there a total spread it is a widespread um for people who have had chemical addictions like uh, drugs and alcohol it's really important that they go through detox and have a period of time where they are off the chemical influence in their lives so that their emotional life has has a little bit more stability because otherwise we can't analyse how we're feeling if one day uh, the next we're still under the influence of, of chemicals. And it's a result of those chemical addictions that people's emotional health is being so distorted. So whether it's chemicals that we produce ourselves within our body that creates stress addictions but or behavioural addictions or other things that we intake, the principle is the same. But a lot of the people that come on the course are also the family members of somebody who has a chemical addiction, so the people who are codependent, and we help them find healthy responses and have lives of much more freedom mm. joy. you talked about some pretty scary statistics in Ukraine that, that describe the, the, the impact of this problem. Yes. I mean, just how widespread it is... Well, unfortunately, um, I would say uh, the vast majority of people in Ukraine are codependent um, because of the very high addiction to alcohol and uh, use of drugs. Um, about 40% of men uh, have uh, alcoholic problems, uh, problems with controlling their use of alcohol. It's been very widely accepted in the culture, also because of the turmoil in society where many people have lost their jobs and lost the whole way of living out of depression and hopelessness. Uh, many people also turn to use of alcohol because it's so easily available and where you've been drinking, it's the what, natural thing to just start drinking more. That's 
staggering it's uh, very statistics heartbreaking. really yeah. and especially when you get to know families and homes um, there's so many broken homes so many wives who've been beaten and so many children who just can't talk about um, their childhood because of the pain uh, and abuse that they grew up in and the shame that that brings to them the lack of identity the, the difficulty then mm-hmm. to trust other people let alone to trust God and they feel that God has abandoned them mm-hmm. and so we really seek to try and help them experience God and realize that he is really there and caring uh, for them and can bring them true love and freedom. Alison Giblet on the process of helping people understand true love and freedom. She would find herself doing that same thing in the Christian counseling tent that was set up on Kiev's Maidan in the wake of the killing of protesters during the revolution earlier this year. Now Jonathan Self, CMS Link Materials Editor, brings us a short reflection on what we've heard. Listening to Alan and Anne Lacey talk about the different culture that they found themselves in, the West Nile, towards the end of their working lives, between the years 2007 and 13, and how they adapted and coped with this displacement, made me reflect on how we all cope with shifting sands. This often involves new territories, and how we cope with perhaps unexpected difficulties and hardship. In adversity, we often flourish, and Alan and Anne certainly did that, using their giftings and skills to train, inspire and encourage others to be the people that they were called to be, and to help them to become fully human. This leads me on to our second commandment, to love others as we love ourselves, enabling people to become fully human And one such person who Alan and Anne loved was a man called Ephraim, who they talk about in this recording and wrote about in a previous link letter. He was a church teacher and a pastor who had got sick with liver cancer. Alan and Anne were able to help him access some palliative care that he might not be able to access otherwise. Perhaps more importantly, were able to walk that chapter of his life with him. They loved him and prayed for him and conducted a communion service outside his home the day before he died. It was a relationship and friendship that spoke of Jesus and was pointed to a new way of being. As we step out of our comfort zone, perhaps enter foreign territory, we find ourselves actually coming home to our true homeland to love others as we were first loved. Jonathan Self bringing this edition of Audio Mission to a close. I'm Trevor Smith and I look forward to welcoming you back next month for more interviews from the cutting edge of God's mission around the world.